Welcome to Pro Stinted Glasses. I'm Katie. And I'm Bailey. And this week we are talking about The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. This was my first time reading the book, but Bailey reread it. Yes. And I think we both, uh, I think it did not live up to either of our expectations, really. I still feel like it did, but I noticed things that I hadn't necessarily remembered about the first read. But I'm very prone to that, where I get so excited about the good parts of a book that I don't remember the parts of a book that I struggled with. Uh, I.e., this book is a absolute behemoth, mm-hmm. and it does not start out very fast-paced at all. Yeah, I'm going to do a lot of hedging this episode because I think that I am going to really, really love this book on a reread when I already know what the fuck is going on. Um, But I had a lot of trouble following. And I think that part of that is just a function of it's been a while since I've read High Fantasy. I also was listening to it instead of reading, which was certainly a choice that I made. But we all have to live with our decisions. And it was just, it the pacing, we'll get into it a little bit more, but it was a hard one for me to get to, get through, even though there were certainly parts of it I loved. I, and like I said, I think that the next time I read this, I'm going to have a much more positive opinion. Yes, I still really liked it. Uh, disclaimer, I did read the entire second 400 pages this afternoon prior to recording, so... <laughs> I can say that the first half was a bit of a slog for me to get to, definitely, because I started five days before recording and thought that it would be in plenty of time, and it was not. Yeah, we almost rearranged this recording, and then Bailey's like, no, it's fine, I'll just finish it, and I didn't realize how much of the book you had left when you said that. I thought you were like... I didn't tell you how much of the book I had left when I said that. Probably quite pointedly. When I got in the car leaving the lake, because part of those five days were on vacation, I had read 18% of the book. Oh, that, yeah, that, I would have talked you out of that, I think, if you had told me the actual number. I had some time to read in the car ride. I'm one of those lucky people that can read in the car. And um, I read after work today. So if some comment I say sounds completely... um off the rails it is because (laughs) i worked a full day and then read 400 pages (laughs) here we are (laughs) anyway so this is gonna be an interesting one that being said everything is very fresh in my mind i'm ready (laughs) for this oh excellent okay (laughs) i thought we would just start with um i'm we're just gonna read the back of the book summary and then kind of expand on that just to give some context um i know some of our readers certainly won't have read this yet or maybe not are not into high fantasy um so yeah i'll just do you want to read the back of the book cover do you want me to i would i would do it but i have read the books and not listened to the audiobooks so we will find out very quickly about how i mispronounce everyone's name so if you want to give me the benefit of the doubt here i can that's fair. Either way, I will also preface this by saying usually I feel very superior about pronunciations because I do listen to the audiobooks, but Samantha Shannon on TikTok has said that Audible did not contact her about all of the pronunciations. So 
I'm going to do my best from the audiobook pronunciations, but they're probably not going to be 100% right. But I mean, you're you're welcome to try unless you really don't want to, Bailey. A world divided, a queendom without an heir, an ancient enemy awakens. The house Berethnet has ruled Inez for a thousand years, still unwed. Queen Sabrin the Ninth must conceive a daughter to protect her realm from destruction, but assassins are getting closer to her door. Edrian is an outsider at court, though she has risen to the position of lady-in-waiting. She is loyal to a hidden society of mages. Eve keeps a watchful eye on Sabran, secretly protecting her with forbidden magic. Across the Dark Sea, Tanae has trained to be a dragon rider since she was a child, but is forced to make a choice that could see her life unravel. Meanwhile, the divided East and West refuse to parlay, and the forces of chaos are rising from their sleep. Uh, you did pretty good. <laughs> you did, you pronounced, you pronounced Sabran two different ways, which is impressive. <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> that is one of those names that I skip over because I don't know how to pronounce it, so I just see the, the number of le- the letters and I just go with it. You're like, okay, that character moving on? Yes. Um, yeah, so the way the audiobook pr- pronounced those names were, it was House of Brethnet, which you got, ruled Innes, Queen Sabran, Eid Durian, which you got, and Tanay, which you got, and I think that's all the ones in there. Um, interestingly, the back of the book completely fails to mention two point of view characters when there are only four uh which i think we're gonna get into more later but i think that goes to show how um possibly unnecessary the points of view of nicklaise and loth were but i will get into my opinions later okay we'll talk a little bit more just about like the world and the concept the context of the book but again the the other two point of view characters, so the first two are Eid and Tanay, and then Nicolae's Ruse is an old and self-focused alchemist caught in a resentment at, an, at lengthy exile and grief for a long-dead lover. And that description is taken from Liz Bork's Tor Review, which I really like. Same. And then the other point of view character is Lord Arteloth Beck, and I could not tell you a single fucking thing about that character. So you're going to have to take this one, Bailey. Okay. I mean, Loth uh, gets exiled early on and gives us reason for our other POV character, Eid, to be suspicious. Uh, Eid's best friend also happens to be Loth's sister. So there's like a whole like, we have to find out what happened to him. And he things are happening to Loth. Loth is not really driving anything. I will admit that. Like he he's reacting to things. At one point, he just gets like, kidnapped to the sea or whatever it's fine yeah in that same tour review that i quoted for the description of nicolay's she calls loth brave in an entirely tedious sort of way sorry she says the 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 youthful and boring loth who is brave in an entirely tedious sort of way which i actually love the way that she described him and i think part of that stems from in this book we don't get the young attractive male hero sweeping in as I said, things are mm-hmm. happening to Loth. Um, he's not perpetrating a lot of these events the same way some of the women characters are. I guess we neglected to throw our spoiler warning in. Anyway. Well, most of what we've talked about so far is just the back of the book summary. So here's your official spoiler warning. We are going to be talking about stuff more in depth from here on out. And I guess also spoiler warning, here be pirates. Yeah, that's true. That's like an entire 
No, Here Be Dragons is like an entire section of the book, right? There's not a Here Be, Here Be Pirates section. I mean, but that's just... No, that's true. But there's kind of like, there are pirates. That's that's all I meant. There's pirates. No, you're definitely right. I just thought, because I, I had, was reading the chapter titles and like what the one of the parts is called Here Be Dragons. And I thought you were oh. making reference to that because my brain lost things. But. I was not because I don't read chapter titles, especially on Kindle. Okay. Anyway, moving on. They just pop up at the top of the page. Do they give a lot of context in a lot of books? Yes. Do I deeply regret not reading them in a lot of books? Like, usually, there's a lot of foreshadowing (laughs) I often miss. I just, my eyes skip straight to the block of text. Uh, Just a quick aside about chapter titles. I'm back on my Percy Jackson bullshit, and I'm on book three of The Trials of Apollo, and all of the chapter titles are haikus, and I'm finding it delightful. It's very good to know. I think I'm going to have to reread them. You totally should, for sure. Okay, anyway, so this world is divided into the very vague slash thinly veiled East, West, and South. The East likes the dragons, right? They like the water dragons. Right. So, so first of all, the what happened is a thousand years ago, or whatever, a fire-breathing dragon called the Nameless One that was a great evil in the world was defeated. And the East credits that to their water dragons called Worms with a Y. And then the West credits it to a a line of divine rulers, the House of Berethnet, where every queen has one daughter and then that daughter becomes queen. And they're, they're like no other children, no sons. It's just in a line for hundreds, if not thousands of years a queen has had one daughter, and they take that as like a sign of their divinity. And as long as the house of Berethnet is intact, the nameless one is not going to be a problem. Sorry, I was looking at a map because um, I do, even with all of that, I have a hard time like holding these places in my mind uh, as to like where they actually exist, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I actually don't even think I've looked at a map for this one. I'm also pulling up a map now, because I I don't think I've even looked at one. Oh, it took me to Google Maps. That's sure not helpful. But yeah, there's a lot going on in this world, and one of the biggest factors in it is that these these vague areas all have sort of different belief systems on a huge scale. It's not like, oh, they Mm -hmm. ended up at sort of the same place. It's nothing close to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the the West, and they don't just believe that the House of Breathnet um, defeated the Nameless One. They also believe that like all dragons are evil, and they they fear them a lot. And so, you know, the East is like becoming dragon. They have people becoming dragon riders, and the West is just does not fuck with dragons at all. Yeah, they call the or the West calls the East like worm lovers, and they mm-hmm. like worship demons, whereas the East thinks the the west is heretics and awful for killing the any dragon or demonic or draconian kinds mm-hmm. and there's also the east thinks that the west carries a plague is the plague real or is that just something that the east believes no the plague is very real okay but i'm not entirely sure that it is clear how it's spreading. So theoretically, the plague, 
came from when the fire-breathing dragons from, like, the draconic regions came up. They spread this plague. And the reason mm-hmm. that the East has the sea ban, which is what they won't allow any outsiders into their countries, is to prevent this plague from spreading. They weren't affected by it originally because they have the water dragons, not the fire dragons. And so when it mm-hmm. came to um, Seki? Seki? I don't, I don't have that one for you. Oh, okay. The the country that Tanae's from. No, I, that did not stick in my brain. Okay. Anyway, when it came to that island nation, it devastated their population. And so they enacted the sea ban. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So, yeah. So lots of mistrust, very different beliefs. And then this is where our, our first two main characters, um, Eid. Well, Eid's, we'll actually get to Eid in a second. Tane, though, is from the East, and she's training to be a dragon rider. And the opening scene of the book is she finds a man washed up on the beach, and she's not even supposed to be out. And she knows that this man came from the sea, and since there's this ban, it's her duty to basically turn him in. But then she'll have been in contact with him, and she'll need to be like quarantined or whatever. And her ceremony to become a dragon rider is the next day? The choosing day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... If she gets caught up in all of this nonsense, she's not going to be allowed to participate in Choosing Day. And so she's has to decide between like doing what is right, what the, the country deems as law, or getting to be a dragon rider. And she kind of straddles the middle ground where she takes him into the town and, and makes this guy named Nicolas Ruse um, take him in. And then she just pretends it never happens and goes on to be a dragon rider. Yes. So she uses a a contact in the city to hide this outsider. And this is when we get one of the first changes in POV um, to Nicolay's and find out that he is a self-absorbed drunk. He's trying to find the elixir of life um, to become immortal. He used to live at in the court of Berethnet and promised Queen Sabran that he would create and give her the elixir of life because she is scared to have a child and so she doesn't want to get married she doesn't want to have a baby she's like well if i just live forever uh this is not a problem and like the house of Berethnet keeps going the reason the house of Berethnet needs to keep going is due to uh the religion that the west follows or specifically virtuedom in the west is that mm-hmm. if the house of Berethnet falls the nameless one will come back this is not a belief that is shared by the other parts of, of this this world. Um, mm-hmm. But to Sabran, that is the, the end-all, be-all. She has to live forever or have a kid, which is not on the table. Mm-hmm. And so he failed to produce the elixir of life. Uh, so she treated him either as like a betrayal or that he had been a charlatan the whole time. And she exiled him. And so that's why he's hanging out over in the east with Tane. And it does take a while for these paths to cross again, because they do come back to one another. Um, at the end, actually, everyone ends up in the same place except for one of Nicolay's hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 75% of Nicolay's. Are... Every hero loses a hand, somebody said. <laughs> I mean, all, everyone in Star Star Wars certainly does. Right. Yeah, you still haven't finished Star Wars, have you? No, there was there was another movie i was watching or book i was reading and somebody made some comment about every hero losing their hand and it wasn't until i watched star wars that i was like oh yeah i get what you mean but he didn't (laughs) even lose a hand he got a fake hand back 
It's true. That is true. It's a good point. We digress. <laughs> so that's Tane and Nicolae's over in the east. And then in the west, we've got... I mean, I guess lots starts from the west. But then our other POV character is Eid. And she's actually not from the west. She's from the south. And she is from the titular Priory of the Orange Tree. We actually don't know that until about her third or fourth POV chapter, if I'm remembering correctly. It doesn't really tell you that sh- why she's an outsider in court until a little bit in, where she's like, oh yeah, I was sent from the Priory uh, for this reason to herself. And you're like, wait, what? What? Yeah, it took me, uh, like, the whole first third of this book, I was like, why is this book called The Priory of the Orange Tree? Like, what What does that have to do with anything? And so I, I really was excited when we started getting answers about that. But The Priory in the South, they... Also, they hate dragons, but they also don't believe that the Barethnets are, like, the saviors of the world. Um, they, what is their belief system exactly, Bailey? They believe in the mother. So, they believe in, it actually has the same, quote-unquote, characters, or they're not really characters, the same people that Virtudum believes in, but they know a very different story. So, they believe in the mother, Cleolinid? Anyways, I'm going to call her the mother, because her actual name's too hard. But... The one who slayed the Nameless One originally and gave them this thousand years after the Grief of Ages, she left and opened the Priory of the Orange Tree and um, is the one who first partook of the fruit and became a mage. And that um, Mm -hmm. the saint, the, the guy who supposedly killed the dragon, according to Virtudum, uh, is actually like a, a meek man who fell and was not brave. <laughs> so the reason they think each other are heretics is because basically they have two different myth- like mythologies that directly call the other person's hero the coward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Priory, basically they think that the like House of Brethnet, um stuff is nonsense, but they have an agent in the court of Brethnet at all times, like, just in case, just to, like, keep an eye on things. Just, like, you know, we don't think this is true at all, but it's not going to cost us much to just, like, keep the queen safe. So we're just going to do that. And we find out that that is what Eid's role is. She's there just to pretty much prevent threats to the life of Queen Sabran. And also, like, observe and report back things that, like, happen at court and in Virtudum. Yeah, I mean, she's definitely there to protect Sabran, but then she's also there in part two, as you said, just keep tabs on what's happening in the kingdom. And uh, so from there, we follow these POV characters for quite a while. As we mentioned, it's it's a bit of a slog. Um, and the book does kind of jump you in a fair bit as if you know what's happening, uh, which normally I handle fairly well in high fantasy. But even on a reread this time, I was kind of like, mm, some of this could use more upfront expl- explanation. Yeah, normally I am fine with just like rolling with a book until I finally start to figure out what's going on. But usually like pieces start falling into place earlier, even if it's still really confusing. And at like the entire first third of this book was n- nonsense to me. Like I did not retain a word of 
anything that happened in the first third of the book. And I think part of that is because there was a lot of world building, but it was a lot of like ca- like character building as well. And it was very slow, like looks into their lives for the most part and not, you know, you aren't really getting a sense of like how these characters connected to each other, which truthfully, most of them didn't at first, um, which was very confusing. Um, or like what part of the world you're like, okay, we're, we're jumping over here to Tane and like, she's hanging out with dragons, which is cool, but then there aren't any dragons over here with Eid. And so I feel like they didn't really explain that divide, um, anytime soon enough for me to understand what was going on. I actually agree. Even having read it twice, I do feel like the world building was so vast but so vague in so many ways because the South hardly plays a role, but they refer to it a lot. Mm-hmm. The South only plays a role because Eid is from the Priory, and then at the very end, some of the Southern rulers come in. But prior to that, we only hear mention of the names sometimes, and because the Empire of the Twelve Wakes and is referred to as, like, Lucastrine, like, the Lucastrine, I'm not sure I'm saying that word right at all. Sailor is from the Empire of the Twelve Lakes. It seems like there's multiple names for these things, which is making it more confusing. And Menton, like... Mentenden. Yes. The Mentish, the only role they play is that Nicholas is Mentish, except that he spends a lot of his time at the Inish court anyway. So you have all these references to Mentish, but at no point do they actively play a role in the story. And so I think in yeah, the I think- front half, it only serves to cloud the the important characters in world building. Yeah, they're like still dumping all of the names as though we've already learned the geography. And then they're not explaining the geography. And I, I truly did try looking at maps and I don't think that. I don't think it would help unless I had printed the map and set it next to me while I was reading. Mm-hmm. And and I also want to just caveat that, that what I was saying earlier about, like at the very top of the show, when I was talking about listening to this as an audiobook being a choice, I, I definitely know that high fantasy and things like this that are, are so heavy in the world building are more difficult in audiobooks a lot of the time. I think I, I like, I've been listening to pretty much exclusively audiobooks for four or five years now. And so I think I really overestimated my capacity for um, audio consumption. And so I thought I would be fine, even like listening at a lower speed than I normally do. And it just was brutal. Um, So I think that that has a lot to do with why I felt so confused for some of it. Um, And I think when I choose to reread this in six months or a year or something, I will I will try and, and sit down and read it. Yeah, I definitely could see that. There's no way I could have listened to this book because I am not as into audiobooks as you are, Katie. I listen to them and mm-hmm. I enjoy them, but I'm pretty choosy with which types of books I choose to listen to because I do have a harder time main, re- maintaining that, retaining that information. Yeah. And so for me, high fantasy is just something I will never be able to listen to. I struggled to listen to Ray Bearer, honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that. I got a little lost in that one some. 
Um, so I don't think I ever would have made it through Prior of the Orange Tree. Surprisingly, I made it all the way through the Codex Alera by Jim Butcher, but I feel like that had a much slower introduction to the wider scope of the world. Um, so that helped. And I also specifically only listened while I was running. Mm. Uh, so my brain needed something to... Yeah, there's definitely a threshold in terms of, like, what I'm doing at the same time and, like, what mood I'm in as to, like, how complex an audiobook I can can get into. But I really thought I was in the right headspace for this one and it just didn't work out this time. She a dense book. I mm-hmm. she, she, she thick. She thick girl. I did really enjoy this book and I think that it has a lot of good things going for it. But I do think one of its weaknesses is its density and its Mm -hmm. devotion to spending a lot of time describing mundane daily activities at the Mm -hmm. expense of the pacing. Yeah, the pacing of this book confused me a lot um, because... Like like I said, the first third, super slow, super character-driven, super sloggy, if I'm honest. And then, like, the next half of the book, it, it was still pretty slow, and it took a long time for characters to, like, unite in an interesting way. But we were starting to get, like, hints of that, and it was starting to definitely pick up. And then it's, like, the, like, final action sequence, battle, climax happened so fast and then the book was over we spent 80 percent of the book arranging the pieces on the chessboard but not in an interesting way and then the final 20 percent was sort of the payoff of all of these disparate storylines starting to come together yeah and i really wish that some of them had come together sooner because so, like, a whole point is that both Eid and Tane have or have access to these jewels that are magic that will help them defeat the Nameless One. Katie, did you read the book? I I sure did. Like, I've, I've been very transparent that I had a hard time retaining what was happening. I know, just giving you a hard time. You just sounded so unsure. They did find the jewels uh Tanae's actually was sewn into her side as part of her lineage uh-huh. and Eid had to unlock a box that Loth received from the uh princess of Yscalian scout Yscalian I anyway the draconic empire they had to go on like a they had to go like a on a full treasure hunt on Loth's estate or something right yeah so no that was for the sword Oh, right, that was for the sword. They had, so, this box was actually fetched originally by another member of the Priory, another sister of the Priory. She was captured in the Draconic Lands. She was tortured and killed. The princess saved it, gave it to Loth. Loth and his best friend Kit were supposed to escape with it. The mountain had an earthquake. Um, Kit, unfortunately, did not make it, which... He seems like a womanizer, fun guy to be around for most respects. I'm sad to see him go. And then Loth was rescued by Arkalak, who took Loth all the way back to the Priory of the Orange Tree. And they got the box. Then when Eid came back after being uh, banned from the kingdom, 
because they found out that she was sleeping with Sabran. <laughs> she was able to open it by solving the riddle, found the jewel. Her fingers melted to the jewel until she passed out. That was fun. Um, <laughs> Katie's making fun of my hand movement. <laughs> I was also just imagining like my fingers melting to a jewel. It seems unpleasant. And um, <laughs> anyways, so he came across this through a lot of things coming together. Whereas Tanae just had sort of just sort of had it and never knew. But yes, they both had the ability to use these jewels together, the waning and the waxing jewel. Um, yeah, they needed to they needed to team up and be partners to defeat the bad dragon. And I just think there would have been a lot there could have been a lot more content of them like learning to trust each other and learning to work together and that all just kind of like happened immediately. It was off screen. I feel like yeah, they spent at least a week working together in the lake. Uh, and like in, they could have, I don't but, know, maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't get a- along right away, and they had to like overcome their differences because they're from different parts of the world. I, I don't know. We didn't get to see any of that, and I think that that would have been interesting, and I think it would have made the pacing feel less insane. Yeah, it was off screen while Sabran was um, pol- politicized. She was trying to get her backers to agree to having a an alliance with the east so we were seeing the people in charge of making political arrangements do things while e and Tanae were off screen practicing with these jewels and then it presumably also took them significant time on the boat to get where they were going and we only briefly get glimpses of them on the boat right before the final battle like okay girl are we gonna do this together yes girl let's go and we as Katie said, we don't get to see any of the actual bonding to work together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I like all of that politicking stuff too. I thought that that was interesting. I mean, I'm a noted Game of Thrones survivor, so like clearly I find value in that kind of storyline. But I just think it would also be nice to have some of the fun, the exciting stuff. I feel like every time I got really excited about something that was happening in the story. It just, it, like, didn't happen where, like, it happened off screen, like you said. Like, I really loved the relationship between Tane and her dragon, which I have forgotten the dragon's name, and I'm not going to try and pronounce it from memory. Um, if I was reading it, maybe I could, but we're not going to do that. Um, and I thought that that relationship was so fascinating, and we got, like, three scenes of it total. Right. And it was more like she... One line I remember distinctly because I read it very recently um, is that she spent nights climbing up to where her dragon roosted, basically. But the only time we actually see it is the final night that they make a plan to do something else and then they end up going separate ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there was like a scene of them bonding and then the next night Tane like confessed to um, what she was doing before choosing day because basically Nicolay's found her and blackmailed her and was like if you don't give me your dragon's scale um, I'm gonna get you arrested and like defacing a dragon is like the worst thing that you can do in the east and so Tane was like absolutely not but then it seemed like her dragon was like uh, like I thought it was gonna be like cool like you can take a scale and give it to this guy like we're friends it's fine but then Tane got arrested and then the dragon got kidnapped by pirates and 
then there were very few scenes with Tane and her dragon. Right. I do feel like maybe it would have been stronger if her dragon was like, because we're friends, you can have this thing, because I know he's not working out for the best or or whatever, but yeah, instead it set off another series of events where uh, Nicklays actually ends up spending more time on screen with her dragon than Tane does. Like, it and I think that's something interesting to do. Like, I like when you take characters that are, are not meant to be in the same space and, like, push them together. But I feel like that would only have worked well if we already had a solid background of, like, Tane and her dragon being together. Like, it's like we separate these two characters that we barely see together. And so that, I mean, it's got kind of an emotional impact, but not as much as I, I think it could have. And then we push these two characters that we still don't know very well and we shove them together um i just think it could have been done a little better i don't hate it but i don't know that i like it as a storytelling mechanism i guess if that Mm -hmm. there are interesting aspects of it but i think due to the density of the novel and the fact that i feel like we were focused for so long on getting people into places only for what's built up to be this climactic battle for the world to play out in the last 50 pages Mm -hmm. is just not the most impactful thing. And I'm not sure that there is going to be any significant follow-up in terms of a second book. I believe she said she, there are more stories for this world to tell, but that they won't necessarily focus on the same characters. And I think if there had been a second book, or if part of this book got split into a second book with more after this final battle, it might have felt more compelling. Yeah, I so I've seen a couple of times where Samantha Shannon has com- commented on it being a standalone book, and... I think what she says in a lot of ways makes sense. Like, part of it was um, she just thought it would be nice to for someone to be able to read a standalone fantasy. Um, and she really felt that all of the parts of the story were leading to one conclusion. Which makes sense. But I think even just, like, chopping this book in the middle and leaving it more or less alone except for it being two books, would have made the pacing much more palatable. Because I feel like there can be slow and sloggy parts in series and duologies and in trilogies. And, like, they're more, um, just, they're easier to get through because you, you like, already know that it's part of a whole. Right. And I, I can think of some parts where cutting off the story could have created a lot more tension than what I ended up feeling <laughs> because I don't think the tension of uh, Loth get waking up in the Priory Tree was as strong as it would have felt if that was the end of his POVs for a book and you didn't mm-hmm. get to catch up until the next book. The same thing goes for the attack in the city when Sabran and her husband Albrecht are out and about and Albrecht gets murdered like that would be an impactful point to end the novel I do say this as someone who would have definitely thrown the book across the room if I ended the book 
with an attack cliffhanger. But again, that's like, it makes you feel something. There's tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. It's like that kind of where you're like so mad at the book for doing what it did, but like that is what makes a good long-term experience with books, I feel like, is that that level of attachment and that level of, like you said, tension. Right. And I do feel like I liked this novel because a lot of the characters that we see making things happen are female, and that's not necessarily mm-hmm. something very common in high fantasy. So I felt excited to read a high fantasy where the characters were mainly women, I guess. Um, and it's yeah, not. I absolutely love that it was like female centered, female driven, and that that was just like not even. It wasn't even necessarily a commentary. It was just, oh, you know, it's a line of queens. They're all ladies. They live in a queendom. And, like, girls can be dragon riders. No worries. And, like, oh, the the Priory of the Orange Tree is just, like, a female-centered organization. Like, I liked that it was so, like, casual and matter-of-fact. And it wasn't, like, women can do it, too. It was just, like, right, this world is female-driven. Sorry. I was going to say that there was no... None of the conflict was, well, you can't do this because you're a woman. It was just like, everybody does the job that they do. And maybe there is some commentary being said because in Inez, like, the husband of the queen is considered the prince consort, not a king. Mm-hmm. The priory has all male, there's a family line of all male servants that help do some of the um, like housekeeping around the priory and things like that. In the East, there's both men and women in, in dragon rider positions and stuff like that. But if she's making that commentary, it's so subtle, it's almost not worth calling out because it doesn't jump off the page in the same way that other books that have intended social commentary do. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, I think there's a commentary um, like to to us in like our outside world i don't think that there what i was saying is i don't think there's any sort of commentary like in universe where like nobody is upset or confused like there's no patriarchy in the universe that they're fighting against it's just a world where men and women are created are considered and treated equal if not more of a matriarchy than a patriarchy fair uh, it is It is also slightly sapphic. Katie, I know you said that you saw it tagged as, like, a lesbian Game of Thrones, which is something I've never seen it tagged as, so I'm gonna let you take that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was just... I might have been kind of facetious, and if I, if I saw those exact words, I think that they were also facetious. But it was basically... I have seen it marketed marketed in quotes because like on social media people just sharing about it um as like as sprawling and as like epic and as like well built of a world as a song of ice and fire but with lesbians um or but sapphic at least uh i think sabran probably is bisexual so they're probably not both lesbians but um i think that it was definitely not as sprawling as I was expecting based on that tagline. And I think that's fair because again, Game of Thrones has currently five, theoretically seven books 
to tell the story of the world and the characters and the politics and the intrigue. And it really does take its time, like, spreading out. Um, whereas it, in a standalone book, there's only so much you can do. And if I were to reread A Song of Ice and the Fire for the first time, if I were to reread it now, and I distinctly remember it the first time I read it, keeping track of all of those characters, uh, this was a time when the internet community was uh, less readily available for books, i.e. on like just jumping on TikTok or whatever. But I distinctly remember having to go to fan sites to look up character lists because keeping track of everybody in that series became a chore where if you weren't fully dedicated to like this book at this time, you couldn't keep everybody mm-hmm. straight. And I think part of the only reason I managed it is um, because I lived with no TV and no internet for two weeks and I just read all five books mm-hmm. during that time. And so it was the only media occupying my mind. Uh, so it, this isn't to say that that series isn't also sprawling and confusing and very much a slog at sometimes, but because mm-hmm. of the breadth of the series and the time it takes to get where it's going, it didn't feel as rushed and the payoffs do feel bigger. Yeah, and this is one of the... My love for A Song of Ice and Fire is one of the reasons that I think I am going to like this book a lot more the next time I read it. Because one of the reasons... We talked last week about comfort books, and I said insanely that A Song of Ice and Fire and like King Killer Chronicles are, are two of my like comfort reads that I go back to time and again. And it's because I know like the general premise of what's happening already so well but every time i go in i find new details and new plot points and so i think they'll be able to enjoy the prose of priory a lot more it's gotten a lot of praise for its prose but i honestly like couldn't even focus on that because i was just desperately trying to figure out what was going on and I'll be able to enjoy that more the next time. And also, the first time I read A Song of Ice and Fire, I was certainly confused for a lot of it. And speaking of slogs, A Feast for Crows was so fucking boring that I DNF'd it the first time I read it. But then when um, the fifth book came out, I went back and reread them and finally like pushed through and finished A Feast for Crows. If Again, if I had not been um, living alone with no TV and no internet, in the mm-hmm. ass end of Indiana for two weeks. I probably wouldn't have finished A Feast for Crows because truly, wow. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't even hate A Feast for Crows now that I've read it a couple more times because now I, like I said, I know what's happening and so I don't have to just like sit there wondering when um, plot is going to happen. I can instead just like hang out with the characters. Well, and I think that that's something that's going to happen here too. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a uh, four and five are where they split so that each book is happening concurrently, but you're only getting specific POV characters. Uh, Three and four. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Either way, hated that concept. And then, and then four, then four, but also four and five, because then four goes a little bit farther chronologically. And then, so part of that overlaps with five, whatever. George R. R. Martin can't divvy up a book to save his life. It's fine. I made it through Wheel of Time. So, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'm jaded and just accept that some books will be the sloggiest of slogs. Um, but it's just, I'm like, I 
read not 100% for plot, but like I plot is what I'm drawn to in a book. And so with the ex- exception of like books where I, I know I'm getting into a character driven book, I will read thinking, okay, but like when is anything going to happen? And until I like know what's going to happen, I just like can't focus on anything else. That's fair. Um, I also do feel like at least I believe that I read this book really before book talk kind of I don't want to say got a hold of it because it's not like they did anything to it like just mm-hmm. before I started seeing recommendations flying about it on book talk and before it became a book talk fave yeah for me the whole the sapphic thing is like great it's there but it never stood out to me as like a major selling point for the book it was just part of the story and I still upon rereading it after hearing how some people react to that I just feel like it's like yeah I mean sure but it's not that's not the only thing that it really drives is Eid running away from the Priory with Loth to save Virtudum uh, which yeah I mean I guess that's a big deal the things you do for love but Mm-hmm. Also, we could have arrived at that plot point through so many other pressures on the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, uh, I really liked the relationship between Eden and Sabran, um, and more so as the book went on. And I think that that is a really good part of the book and the plot. But I, I definitely think that people, like I said, calling it sapphic Game of Thrones, were we're maybe overselling the centralness of the sapphicness. I think that's what I'm getting at is that it's yeah, it's not that's not what I take away as like the the focus of the book or some a huge selling point of it. It's just like an added sprinkle bonus mm-hmm. to the story and it's great and I do think by the end of the book the relationship is a lot deeper than it starts out. Katie, I had read your stream of consciousness notes before I started rereading it. Um, and one of your things was Eid was cool, but I don't feel like Sabran got the chance to be a character. So I don't know why Eid likes her. So I did kind of go into my reread with that in the back of my mind. And at the very beginning, I was like, oh, maybe Katie has a point. And as it kept going on, I was like, I'm not so sure Katie has a point. I don't feel this way. It's okay if she does, but mm-hmm. I feel like Sabran gets a fair amount of development for a non-POV character. Yeah, uh, so I wrote most of my stream of consciousness notes at, like, 80-ish percent of having, like, I hadn't completely finished the book, and so I was just trying to get, like, notes on a page for us to, like, have things to talk about, and I I didn't want to keep reading because I was um, in kind of a slump, and so instead I did this, and... I think I've definitely revised my feelings about Sabran somewhat. I do feel like the early relationship, I still, I stand by it a little bit because all we see for like the first 50 to 60% of the book is Eid calling Sabran and the people of Ennis stupid for their beliefs. And she like takes her job seriously, like she protects Sabran. And I feel like that relationship builds so slowly which which is great i love a slow burn but it just like builds so slowly and then it's like a flip is switched and i i i feel like i i wasn't quite on board with with the switch flipping um when it happened in the book 
I can understand that. But I do think that when you told me that, that you were only like 80% through and that was your feeling on it, I was like, you need to read that last 20% of the book because I promise things mm-hmm. pick up. And I, I really wish we could have gotten a more even distribution between all the things that happen in the end of the book that make the story good and the beginning half of the book where it's it's slow going. It's like all of these storylines are like like ropes or like cords and at the end they all tie into these beautiful wrapped up knots but it would have been nice if like earlier in the story any of them started to like cross over each other like they just stay so parallel for so much of the book and it's it's really hard to buy that like coming together team up at the end like we don't need to go full like found family novel but there needs to be like some overlap of characters for me to to care that they care about each other right the only storylines that really spend any significant amount of time near each other are uh nick Clayson and, and Tanae. like mm-hmm. they cross over a little bit and for some reason in my mind before the reread i had the um trip to loth and margaret's estate as a much bigger part of the book where they go to find the sword it's a couple of pages, honestly. They like travel super fast well, but there. They, they they like they like talk about it more before, and then they have to talk to their dad first, right? Because I like I remember that part in more clarity than I remember most of the book. But maybe it's because it's one of the parts that I enjoyed, right? No, so they it's just Eden Margaret like travel back really quickly. They have dinner with her mom. They talk to her dad, and then they go out at night to go into this this hole in the Haithwood. And then they find the sword, and then as they're exiting with the sword, the Lady of the Woods comes and shows them that she's a shapeshifter and defeats them and flies off with the sword, and they, they travel back to the palace the next day. It's hmm. very quick. It, and that's, but I remember it so distinctly, and I spent so much of the book being like, wow, I, I remember this happens at some point. And the same thing happened with Loth and Tanae being in the Empire of the Twelve Lakes, like I had their time at that that kingdom built up to so much, and really, it's it's quite near the end. It's one of the final pieces of the puzzle that comes together to lead to the final battle. Mm-hmm. It takes Loth ninety percent of the book to get to that point. Yeah, again, the pacing in this book was just very off-putting. I think. And I, maybe I will settle into it more when it's not a few hours removed from finishing it, and I'll feel like the um, the beginning half of the story didn't feel so sloggy. But coupled with the fact that I've kind of been in a reading slump anyway lately, like trying to mm-hmm. dig through the beginning of that book definitely took its toll on me. And mm-hmm. the the latter half definitely picked up i think it's the only reason i was able to finish it today is because all those fun things that i remembered started to happen again Mm -hmm. yeah i think that that's probably part of my problem too is i was already in like just like a a miniature reading slump and i really was excited to read priory and that like that first three hours of listening was just like so difficult for me to get through that then the rest of the book became that much more of a chore because I was already, like I said, in like a little bit of a slump, and then this thing that I was really excited for wasn't quite living up to expectations, and then it's just very long, and 
Yeah, what was the real-time length of the audiobook? 26-ish hours. Okay. 25 and a half. Real-time length was... Okay, well, now it's not loading. That's okay. I was just curious. Yeah, 25 hours, 52 minutes. Nice. I was going to say, because I know you said you actually played with your speed and did take it off of breakneck crazy. Yeah, I was being a little bit less psychotic. I'm listening to it at like 1.8 or 2x for most of that. Um, I did, I, I, again, at the end when I got into it more, I was back up to like 2.8-ish. Right, but that's still super long to listen to. Um, mm-hmm. And I can see where listening that long and then not being able to really feel like at the end that it was worth, like the end of those three hours that you were like into it just puts a damper on the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, I am excited to reread this. I-, I think I'll like it more, but I, I had struggles. Right. This time. And I think one interesting point that you raised in the notes is that Samantha Shannon came up with the existential threat of the nameless one then then we don't really run into any we don't see a lot of direct effects of this threat on screen during the novel yeah it's like it's this big existential threat like any oh the nameless one would be the worst thing ever oh we can't let the nameless one come back and then the nameless one is on on page for such a short amount of time and is quite easily defeated in in terms of fantasy battles um that it's just like i really like the idea of this looming threat and then there's like no follow through as to like why it's a threat which i can take i can see you know it's been so mythologized that maybe it was like never that big of a deal and they're able to vanquish it with teamwork and and magic jewels teamwork makes the dream work (laughs) always and i I don't know it was just it was unsatisfying to have like that be the big bad and then the final battle took like no time right it it's an interesting villain uh because it it doesn't play a direct role in a lot there are attacks by fire breather dragons uh in various places in the west but we don't see them we see people fly over them or people run past them mm-hmm. we see the ruins of them we don't see the attacks um i posited to katie earlier that maybe the real villains are the ones we met along the way <laughs> which is basically saying Maybe the real villain here is not necessarily the nameless one, but how over the past cent or thousands of thousand years, the different parts of the world have become so estranged from one another and have vilified each other so much that overcoming that is really um, learning to realize that the people from the different countries are just like them, just people, and that they don't need to be so separate from one another. Uh, But that doesn't really come into play even until sort of the end again, because we get all of this buildup, but it's not until Loth leaves the Priory or Sabran realizes she's in love with a heretic or Tanae spends off-screen time with 
Westerners and Southerners that they sort of realize all of this, it seems. Mm-hmm. And they convince the Emperor of the Twelve Lakes just very quickly that they should all mm-hmm. work together. Yeah, the unceasing Emperor was, like, very chill with the whole thing. He was like, cool, I'm in. I mean, like, cool dude, great for you. D- did I get that wrong? You-, you gave me, you gave me, like, a squinty eye. Oh, yeah, because, no, I was giving him the squinty eye. It was like, yeah. Okay. You're right. Like he, like he's a cool dude, I guess. But yeah, he doesn't. Again, it's because I feel like those locations in this world don't get to play a role until the very end, when it's convenient to have all these countries rise up together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's one of those things. Like I love multiple POVs as like a again a song of ice and fire survivor. Um, but I feel like both that there were too many POV characters, I think this would have been strengthened overall as a story if maybe we'd pared it down to just Eid and Tane and just, like, found some other way to learn whatever information we learned in the other two point of views, um, which I feel like was nothing, so it doesn't matter anyway. Um, or there should have been, like, a handful more characters so that we could really expand the breadth of the world and like have someone from the the empire have someone from that maybe like is staying at the priory and then we could have contrasted that with Eid's point of view um how, how do you just like expanding that how do you feel about interludes i think they can work so pov you've got one or two povs and then the interludes are often from a another point of view but not someone who is a main point of view character for the rest of the book. Because I feel like Loth's point of views for getting the lockbox and um, traveling as the emissary for Sabran could have made interesting interludes, but we could have probably cut his POVs, like him and Kit just traveling and arriving was not necessarily Mm -hmm. an important part, but the interlude of him talking with the princess learning about the lockbox and the fact that the king of Yaskalion was possessed by one of the fire-breathing dragons and then escaping with the box could have made a decent interlude. And then... For sure, yeah. Maybe an interlude with Nicholas and how he is interceding in Tene's story and how she gets banned from being in the sea guard and things like that. So mm-hmm. less time with them, but still those quick glimpses to show some of the stuff that otherwise would have had to happen and then be told to us through another character. So I really like that. And I think that the really great way that they could have structured it was because the book is broken up into six, quote unquote, books, like sections. And at like the top of each section, we have an interlude with one of the non-main POV characters so we get that information, and then we don't have to deal with all of the slogginess of watching them travel or watching Nicolae just, like, be a bitter, drunk old dude. Right. And um, this is another segment of Katie and Bailey rewrite the novel they just read. <laughs> it's my favorite segment, TBH. I won't Why doesn't lie. everyone hire us to rewrite their novels? I don't know, but we don't even have a sponsorship yet, so <laughs> we got a long way to go. Um I I will not lie, I did get that idea from The Way of Kings, The Stormlight Archives mm-hmm. by Brandon Sanderson. That's, he utilizes that narrative device. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think 
They're also really big books with a lot of things that happen. Like, they're also really dense novels. This helps mm-hmm. break it up some and, and gives you a new perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, George R. R. Martin does, like, um, prologues from, like, random one-off character POVs. And so it's basically just just having those random one-off character POVs slightly more often through the book. But I think there's definitely a way that it could have been structured um, that would have made that palatable and just like way easier and more accessible of a read right um and i'm i am a little bit team loth like i think that his pov was needed in some ways but i also think it could have been cut down especially in the beginning i mean give all of his role to meg i liked meg meg was cool i remember nothing about loth but every time meg was on screen i was like hell yeah just switch him (laughs) i forgot about her completely until like halfway through the reread (laughs) <laughs> I liked her. I'm not saying I didn't like her. She was like a great supportive friend. Like her friend who's wanted by the Royal Guard and has a price on her head shows up in her room in the middle of the night. And Meg is like, oh, hey, where have you been? <laughs> like, What's going on with you? She rocked. And she's like, yeah, cool. You can take my really expensive horse. Bye. <laughs> All right. Now that it sounds like we've made this book that we didn't enjoy at all, but actually I did. Um, and again, I, like I, I did enjoy it. I just had, I struggled uh, with it. And I think I've said it like 40 times now. I'm going to really like this the next time I read it. I just, um, uh, I had a hard time this time. Right. And I'm not going to act as if I'm the most discerning high fantasy reader out there because I'm most certainly not. I literally, one of the first reviews I saw for this um <laughs> this book was like hit me with that 800 pages of high fantasy and i like almost immediately made it my pin tweet for like 3 days <laughs> and then i did something ridiculous in our group chat i'm pretty sure and um no it's something else but <laughs> if you ever want a glimpse into the chaos of our group chat just look at our header photos on twitter <laughs> Yeah, it's always good. Oh, hi, Bruce. I think Bruce is telling me it's it's time for his um, night. W-A-O-K. Oh, no. So we probably should walk it up. Should uh, wrap it up. Oh, <laughs> he my just God. spelled he... it and then you said the word. Katie, you said the word. He didn't He didn't clock it, so we're Ooh. good. I, I, I did get very scared after I accidentally said that, but he's fine. So on on that note, Bruce, uh, on that note, Bruce has asked us to make our final thoughts for this. Okay, final thought. I don't want to just repeat myself a bunch of times. I I liked so many elements of this. It's like it has all the ingredients of things that I should or would normally love, and it's a book that I have been like highly anticipating, and it just it just didn't click for me this read through. But I have a lot of hope for how how I'll feel about it in the future. Uh, my final thoughts are that I um, am willing to put up with a lot of things in high fantasy that upon critically reviewing, I'm like, man, I didn't really like that aspect of it. But if you were to like come up to me in a bar and be like, what book would you recommend? I'd be like, Prior of the Orange Tree. It was so good, dude. I mean, it's kind of big, but like you'll get through it. You're going to love it. It's sapphic ice and fire. I would never say that. <laughs> no, I said that's not because there's like something wrong with that. That's just not how I would choose to describe this book. Well, it's like it's like I get why they made the con- the con- 
wow, I cannot use words anymore. I get why they made the comparison. There's like dragons and shit and like political intrigue. So like, I get it. Right. I just would never, I would typically probably go with something more like, well, there's like dragons and pirates and (laughs) I don't know, dude, it's high fantasy. There's magic. (laughs) When people ask me what my favorite book is, I fucking panic. (laughs) Same. I have never read a book in my life when someone asked me what my favorite book is. I mean, when people ask me my favorite anything, I have have no idea. Except for, I know my favorite movie is The Prestige because I decided that in like 10th grade and then I just have never thought about it again. It's too late to change your personality now, Katie. Yep, that's the entire, I, I just know it, so. Right, so... I wouldn't describe any the book like that because I simply do not possess the eloquence to put something like that into the universe when someone asks me to describe <laughs> a book I'm recommending. I'm just like, here, take it. It's good. I, I feel that. So I, I, despite the fact that we just spent a not insignificant amount of time talking about things that we struggled with in this book, I definitely still rate it highly. And I think if you have any interest in high fantasy and have... Uh, the time and mental space right now to like put a little bit more effort into a book, you should definitely read it. Yeah, I agree. And I, I will definitely take your advice in six months or a year and when I'm in the right headspace and try it again. And um, my final piece of advice is if you're free on Monday, August 23rd, you should come tell us in person why you didn't finish Priory or why you did. Because we will be doing a live show. A live show? Can you believe? I can't. It's going to be interesting. I I cannot. Um, I can't. Like, you get to hear what comes out of our mouth um, without editing. I mean, we don't edit heavily, but still. You're going to be surprised by the amount of ums. Yeah, we got we got a lot of those. I mean, me me specifically. I'm way worse about it than you. Mm, sometimes I feel like it's about 50-50. Either way, hopefully the audience energy will keep us from um, doing too much. But yeah, it's at fretboard brewing in cincinnati on august 23rd i don't know the start time check our socials (laughs) yeah uh worst case scenario we're bad but you get to drink some beer so it's a win-win they have good beer yeah so we will see you then slash upload that episode next and then after that we're gonna just take a, a brief hiatus to kind of get our shit together plan out our next crop of episodes and uh make sure we've got some great content for you guys in the future right we are trying to avoid uh me reading 400 pages after work the day of the podcast recording in the future so that we can so that we can record on monday and then edit it and turn it around to publish it on thursday just so we're definitely not the only people in the podcasting world to have struggled with this but that's why we decided to take a quick little break uh we'll be back for spooky season because spooky season is very important to us yeah halloween is the best holiday and i will fight you about it you will because i'll let zach take this one (laughs) okay anyway so that's wrapping up prairie we'll see you soon with our live show hopefully in person at fretboard brewing in cincinnati check our socials for more details on that um and yeah don't forget as always we are we are right and we should say it pour yourself a glass of wine Let's start reading in between the lines Never know what we might find Yeah, it could be magic Oh, 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 oh.
Prostant in Glasses is hosted by Bailey Utrecht and me, Katie Phillips. Our logo is by Baby Truth Collection, and our theme song is by Anna Voss. She's fantastic. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you get the chance. It'll really help us grow. If you're local to the Cincinnati area, come hang out with us at Fretboard Brewing on Monday, August 23rd at 7 p.m. I looked up the time. Thanks!